Hello, love bugs. It's February 14th. You know what that means? It means we're a day late from what we said we're going to do. <laughs> Accurate. But we ha- Oh, go ahead. Hi, everybody. My name is Kim. And I'm Steve. And this is the latest edition of An Hour of Your Life. And what were you going to say? I was going to say, we're going to have to, I'm, I'm going to be happy because... We're going to amend what I said last week. Yeah, we're going week. to amend. As long as we get the show out on Saturday or Sunday, on the weekend that it's supposed to go out. Okay. Because now as uh, Governor DeWine has lifted the oh. curfew... Things seem like they're Hallelujah. opening up, but it's really not safe yet. But the, the, cur- the curfew has been lifted. And you know what? We may actually go out and eat someplace on a Saturday Hello, night. Hello, Luckies. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah, if you're in the Dayton area, I can't recommend the Oregon District enough at uh, Lucky's Tap House down on 5th Street and 5th Street Brew Pub also hey. down on 5th Street. They have some mighty good hamburgers. They do. Yeah. Okay, so this week's show, we kind of knew we were going to do on Sunday night, but it's taken me probably 30 to 45 minutes to get everything set up tonight because all of a sudden, everything on the computer, on the laptop, on the iPad, all the little programs that we use decided they all need to update at one time. It's the 5G it's it's the 5G that just happened. So it's the 5G novel yeah. coronavirus. But, so I also just burned my tongue on my very hot tea. So if I tar- start talking weird, that's why it's because I have no tongue left. So we are a, a day later and about 35 minutes later getting this show out because hmm. everything had to get updated. I couldn't help it. Uh, yesterday was a really good day though. Our friend Bryn came over and so she was like the first person aside from like family that has come over since all of the pandemic and all of that stuff. So it was nice to have just a friend over. And that was done extremely safely. Bryn has been extreme social distancing. Yeah. Her mom is immunocompromised and she's living with her right now. So, um, Bryn has had to be very, very, very careful. And so we we kept our distance, and she made us delicious cupcakes, uh, and Steve made dinner, which was also delicious. I don't don't give me that look. It was, it was also delicious, much as Bryn's cupcakes. I just would like to plug Bryn's cupcakes because she's going to start her own business making cupcakes, and eventually, when that gets off the ground, you'll be hearing a lot about it. I may start a podcast with my food recipes. I have a lot of original foods that I make. You want to start the show? Yeah, go ahead. Okay. You don't like my foods? No, I do. I just, uh, I, I fear we're venturing off into the weeds. <laughs> well, happy Valentine's Day to you too, sweetie. Hi, I love you. <laughs> so it is that February 14th. So naturally, I was all set to do a joyful and uplifting episode about the St. Valentine's Day massacre. But then Tuesday happened. So, what happened on Tuesday? Well, we had the news on watching the impeachment trial of one Donald J. Trump when on my television appeared the image of one Mr. William J. Belknap. Have wait, you ever wait, heard wait, of wait, him? Wait, 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 wait. You said Belknap. His yes. name is spelled 
Belknap. Now, why no. why is that K His silent? name is spelled ba- B-E-L-K-N-A-P. I can see that. but Well, they is, can't. But why is the K I, silent? Because it just is. Why is the second E in your name silent? Stevie. You call me Stevie all the time. It isn't. But nobody <laughs> else calls you that. That's, that's my mom does. Oh. <laughs> did. Had you heard of William Belknap before? Not until I watched the the, the trial. Impeachment. Yeah, I never heard of him either, but he seemed really important. So we kind of took a hard turn away from the St. Valentine's Day Massacre. Maybe you'll get that next year. Uh, and we're going to dive today into a story that yet again proves the more things change in American politics, the more they stay the same. Yeah, and I watched... The uh, the movie called Lincoln the other night and it was just like okay <laughs> and, yeah it's a good movie but yeah it's it's history repeats itself again and again and again and again aren't we exciting we we were digging up these old dead guys <laughs> about the show but and then they are really interesting and then we're watching Lincoln I know right I mean, that but was my big you know what we're history nerds and we are not ashamed of it at least I'm not maybe you are apparently mm-mm, mm-mm. all right so. William Worth Belknap was born was born in Newburgh, New York. Okay, so there's another one. Newburgh, spelled N-E-W-B-U-G-R-H. That H is silent, but you didn't complain about that. Newburgh. <laughs> anyway, Belknap was born in Newburgh, New York, on September 22nd, 1829, the son of career soldier William G. Belknap and Ann Clark Belknap. Belknap's father had fought with distinction in the War of 1812, the Florida War, and the Mexican-American War. He attended the local schools in Newburgh, and he graduated from Princeton University in That's 1848. Yeah, right he, was, he was very kind of a big deal. All right, so after Princeton, he was admitted to the Washington, D.C. bar to practice law in 18— There are a lot of bars in D.C. There are, but I'm talking about the legal bar oh. to practice law in 1851— and I then, mean, that's where all the congressmen, the senators, and all the... Uh, those the, bars in D.C. will get you in trouble. Yeah, and the uh, not not the social media influencers, the, the congressional... What do you call them? The, the congressional uh, influencers? The yeah. aides? No, no, no. The, the ones that go out, oh, I'm having a hard time with my thinking. I don't know. I, anyway. I'll think of it. A few years later, William Belknap moved to Iowa and settled down there. He built a home in... And if you live in this place in Iowa, forgive me, I think it's pronounced Keokuk. He ran for office. He served in the Iowa House of Representatives from 1857 to 1858. And about the time that he moved out there, he married a lady by the name of Cora Leroy and had a son with her who would... Could be Keoku. And that K could be silent like that. (laughs) Could be. Um, They had a son who would later follow in his father's footsteps and become a U.S. representative. Now, when the Civil War started, Belknap joined as a pro-war Democrat who was loyal to the Union. In December of 1861, he was commissioned as a major and was tasked with recruitment. Now, Belknap stood over six feet tall, which was pretty big at that point in time. He was tall. Uh, He had blonde hair and blue eyes and was described as, quote, a fine type of American Saxon manhood end quote, (laughs) who had excellent public speaking skills and powers of persuasion that had been honed by his law career. So Mr. William Belknap was quite the man. Lobbyist. He was not a lobbyist. No, but that's what I was thinking. Lobbyist, those people. Okay, yes, they hang out in the D.C. bar. Yeah. Yeah, okay. (laughs) With the congressman, the senator. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 
Okay, so in March 1862, Belknap and his men were sent to fight at the Battle of Shiloh. Now, this is obviously during the Civil, the American Civil War. A little insight into this particular fight. After some losses in Kentucky, Confederate troops had been forced to withdraw, leaving much of western and middle Tennessee to the Union Army, or the Federals, the Union Army. The Union uh, captured Nashville on February 25th, leading to the fall of the first Confederate state capital. The Army basically severed the crucial railroad that ran through that area, and what that did, that pretty much just split the Confederate army in half. Where did we, we visited? Where was that house that we visited? Remember, um, it was like a private residence and they had that barn that had all of the bullet holes in it. It was down around Franklin. Franklin, t- Tennessee? Yeah. Um, there's really, it's really neat. Uh, if you, I don't, I, I don't remember the name of the house, but if you Google it, I'm sure you can find it. In Franklin, Tennessee, there's a really neat um, Civil War kind of, area around there uh, if you are also a history nerd oh yeah i mean (laughs) i like that stuff okay yeah so the two armies prepared for a battle at corinth mississippi but rebel general albert s johnston attacked at nearby pittsburgh landing catching the union unprepared at uh, what was called the shiloh church Mm mm-hmm Near the center of the Union line was a thick grove of oak trees and dense underbrush bordered by a farm lane. During the morning, this was the scene of um, the most intense fighting of the battle. For six hours, Confederate brigades charged into Union defenders. Each assault was shattered by a storm of federal musket, by federal um, gunfire and artillery. Confederate survivors labeled the position a hornet's nest. On the northwest edge of the field, Rebel Division Commander Brigadier General Ruggles assembled 62 artillery pieces to blast the the Union line barely 400 yards away. Ruggles' battery, as it was known, was the largest assembly of artillery in the war up to that time. And after multiple attacks, the Confederates surrounded position and forced nearly 2,300 Yankees to surrender. Ooh. Yeah. Around 2.30 in the afternoon, while leading an attack on the left end of the Hornet's Nest line, Johnston was shot behind the right knee as he rode ahead of his troops. The bullet severed an artery and blood poured into his boot, unseen by those around him, though. His staff laid Johnston on the ground under a tree where he eventually bled to death within minutes. Johnson's second-in-command, General P.G.T. Beauregard, took charge, calling a halt to the assaults. He's going to be kind of a big deal, Yep, General Beauregard is. By the time the Yankees retreated on the afternoon of April 7th, there had been some 23,800 casualties. That is more casualties than the Revolutionary War, the War of 1812, and the Mexican War combined. Belknap's commanding officer, Corinth, Colonel Hugh Reed said that he was always at the right place at the right time, directing and encouraging officers and men as coolly as any veteran. Bill Knapp was noted for his conspicuous gallantry and was promoted to lieutenant colonel. He later went on to lead the siege at Vicksburg and at the Battle of Atlanta had gained even more fame after he took Confederate soldiers prisoners by simply pulling them 
into the Union trenches. Yeah, and like he would see a guy, a Confederate, and he would just like reach out and grab him and like pull him into the trench. Yeah, well, that, that's, and that's, that's a like, method. You belong to me now. Um, so yeah, he was, he was kind of a hero. He was a war hero. Uh, in 1865, Belknap mustered out of the army. And then in August of that year, President Andrew Johnson appointed him to the post of Iowa Collector of Internal Revenue. That sounds exciting. Bureaucracy. Mm. In that position, Belknap was responsible for collecting millions of dollars in federal taxes, and collectors were paid a percentage of the revenue they brought in, which made the position lucrative and very highly sought after. The position? The position. Mm -hmm. Mm. Uh, So he was making quite a bit of money collecting taxes from the fine folks of Iowa. He served in that position for four years until he was appointed the Secretary of War by President Ulysses S. Grant in 1869. Uh, and we don't have, is that basically like the Secretary of the Army now? Is that what? Or no, the what Secretary is the, of the War would be the equivalent of the Secretary of Defense. Of Defense. Okay. Yeah. So they changed the name at some point, but. Um, he yeah, was, it went from. Secretary. The, the, it went from the Department of War to the Department of Defense. Oh, okay. Um, Belknap was offered the position on the recommendation of none other than William T. Sherman after Belknap had accompanied him on his march to the sea. And I think we've talked about that before, haven't we? Have we talked about Sherman's march to the sea? I know no. we covered it. We covered it on our Savannah episode of... Uh, no, we didn't, we didn't cover it on this episode. No, we, we covered it on um, Mile 13 in our mm-hmm. Savannah episode, if you really want to learn about it. Now, during his term as collector, Belknap had ditched the Democrats and associated himself with the Republican Party in the period of Reconstruction. Now, for those unfamiliar... The Republican Party was trying to make life more equitable for newly freed slaves, attempting to enact laws that would further protect them, and they didn't have a super great relationship with Andrew Johnson. Well, the Republican Party had just passed, at the end of uh, the Civil War, had just passed basically through the Republican votes and some Democratic votes, um, passed the 13th Amendment, which basically freed the slaves. Yeah. Uh, Ulysses S. Grant was a member of the Republican Party, however, so this was a bit of the turning point in the political climate. Now, Belknap's wife, Cora, died during the war. Slightly <laughs> inappropriate, but I'll accept it. Uh, and in 1869, he took a new wife along with a new governmental position. All right, I gotcha. This new young wife was a Kentucky girl. <laughs> Kentucky girl by the name of Carita Tomlinson, and she is going to be his downfall. Are we done with the buttons? I'm done with the buttons. Before the Civil War, but I thought they were appropriate. That, that was that was pretty appropriate. Okay, so now a little bit of background on this situation. Before the Civil War, the trade routes along the Indian frontier, so like think Oklahoma, Kansas, Nebraska had been largely serviced by sutlers. Now, these were basically civilians who followed army camps around in wagons. They set up tents and they sold their wares to the soldiers. So uh, just kind of anything that the soldiers needed, coffee, food. um, Hardtack. Not probably hardtack. I think that was government issued. Mm -hmm. But basically anything else, which is all that they really had to eat was hardtack and like gross stuff. So these settlers or settlers would, um, you know, just kind of follow the army camps around and sell them stuff. However, after the war, this system had been abolished. So the new secretary had to establish a way of supplying his soldiers with the luxuries not provided by the army. 
and the new traderships would be very lucrative, with settlers able to trade and sell to both soldiers on post as well as Indians. And in the summer of 1870, Belknap lobbied Congress to basically put him in control of these settler trade ships, and they agreed. I thought we said he wasn't a lobbyist. He lobbied Congress. Touche. Yeah. Okay. He knew what he was doing out there. Well, we'll find out. That's a, that's a point of contention in this story. Oh, yeah, it's going to get when much it, better. When it all comes down to Remember, it. Remember, this story is about impeachment. Right, uh, yes. So after Congress had agreed to give Belknap control of these trade ships, he basically had a monopoly, which really is not supposed to be, right? Mm-hmm. So soldiers had no place else to buy their stuff besides Belknap-approved traders. So these those traders were able to just drive up the prices as much as they wanted to because the soldiers didn't have any other choice of where to buy the stuff that they wanted to buy. Additionally, the Indians could buy top-of-the-line rifles from traders, which was superior to the government-issued versions and may actually have been a contributor to Custer's defeat at Little Bighorn. That could be a whole other story all in itself right there that we may do an episode on that one Little Bighorn? Yep. Mm -hmm. So I guess you could say this is sort of an early political conspiracy theory. And, you know, we love our <laughs> political conspiracy theories all in fun. Yeah, because we, yeah please we don't actually believe, in that believe stuff. most conspiracy theories are for whack jobs. Are, and really can be very, very dangerous. <laughs> yes. That can lead to danger so and death. What was our conspiracy theory? Which? That right just now about the, Custer. The, Oh, that the Indians were able to buy better rifles and had were, oh, so, were so, armed. Yeah. So Little Bighorn was an inside job. Yeah. <laughs> no. Yeah. No. I don't know. We have to study that. That's why we need to study this one. <laughs> so, enter Carita Belknap, who was a social climber and enjoyed the finer things in life. Hmm. Upon moving to DC from. Iowa. Okay, <laughs> yeah, nothing I mean, against right Iowa, there. but we've driven through it. There's a, there, if there's any place that's got more corn than Ohio, it's Iowa. And okay? honestly, like you're, if you are a social climber and you want the finer things in life, just getting out out of Iowa is probably a okay. good start. So we do have several listeners from Iowa every week that probably now will not listen to us. No, they Much know like better. your first episode when you. <laughs> When you like um, isolated everybody from Georgia, <laughs> they know better. Oh, by the way, Georgia, we are we are coming to hopefully visit you uh, maybe in the fall. Someone talked to me about uh, Helen, Georgia, and it looks beautiful. So so hopefully we can re- I can redeem myself. Yeah, I hope so. So upon uh, moving from D.C. to Iowa, she decided that her husband's secretarial pay of the equivalent in today's dollars of about $157,000 a year just wasn't enough for her. After all, they had a beautiful home, and she had to throw lavish parties. Oh, they were pretty crazy. Yeah. One of their events had 1,200 guests, including many young Army officers. The resulting, um, how would you describe their behavior? Uh, outlandish. Outlandish crazy, behavior. Crazy. Wild. Yeah. Led to extensive damage and vandalism, including mm-hmm. destruction of curtains, couches, other furniture, too, within the household. Well, the Belknaps could not afford to pay for the damages and were faced with leaving Washington society and reducing expenses by living in a boarding house. Oh, heck no. Or finding 
another way to increase their income. They decided to look for additional income, and Corita engineered a plan to obtain a lucrative cash cow Indian tradership position at the recently built Fort Sill in Oklahoma, which was at that time part of the Indian Territory. Corita lobbied her husband to appoint a New York contractor, Caleb P. Marsh, to the Fort Seal tradership. Unfortunately, another sutler by the name of John Evans had already been appointed to the position. Uh-oh. Yep, so to settle the question of ownership regarding the tradership, an illicit partnership contract authorized by Mel- Belknap was drawn. The contract allowed Evans to keep the tradership at Fort Seal, provided he pay $12,000 of the annual profits to Marsh. Evans would be allowed to keep the remaining profits. Marsh, in turn, was required to split half of his receipts from the contract, about $6,000 a year, with Corita. So that's about $118,000 in today's money. Now, we should note here that Belknap, uh, William Belknap, technically authorized this, but it was all done by Corita. And Conniving. the question will become... Uh, did he authorize it or did she just say here sign this and he did i don't know so i guess we'll find out during the impeachment huh maybe okay however corita wasn't much tougher than her predecessor and after giving birth to a son she died of tuberculosis shortly after christmas in 1870 she had only received one payment so she did all of this scheming and she only got one payment out I of it i prefer to call it conniving oh well Whatever. She, she, uh, she did all of this hard work. Yeah. Well, guess what old William Belknap decided to do? What did he decide to do? He married her sister. <laughs> Amanda, a.k.a. Puss, as she was called, had moved in to help take care of the baby and was receiving her sister's kickbacks in baby Robert's name. So she knew what was going on. Like, she was party to all of this. Oh, I bet the girls were talking. Oh, I'm sure. Corita told her, hey, I figured out a way to get more money. And so uh, Puss kind of met with... uh, Now, it's kind of dangerous for my husband, but I really don't care. Yeah. So Puss met with Caleb and uh and arranged for you know well she only got one payment and now she we have this little baby that we have to take care of how about you continue paying us um in in robert's name so unfortunately though robert died at five months old Mm. and after having been widowed herself uh old puss married belknap in 1873 the thing is she was even more extravagant than her sister. <laughs> this lucky guy. <laughs> <laughs> she was so out there that she was given the nickname of the Spendthrift Bell. I would like to see pictures of these women. Uh, yeah, I yeah, was. I really want to see why, why he was so enamored with these. Yeah. That he's going to let all this stuff happen. Uh-huh. Okay. So, of course, the couple continued to take the payoffs from Marsh. But the cash flow didn't stop there. During the Franco-Prussian War from 1870 to 1871, the United States declared neutrality. Now, Belknap had been accused by Grant administration critics, including Senators Charles Sumner and Carl Schurz, of violating neutrality and selling arms to French agents. In fact, Belknap had sold obsolete U.S. War Department firearms to a neighbor of the Remington family, 
which owned the E. Remington and Sons gun making company. And then Samuel Remington was the arms selling agent to the French government and then arranged the sale of those firearms to France. Complicated schemes. It really is. So yeah. Belknap didn't directly sell guns to France, but he sold them to the Remingtons who sold them to France. And so William Belknap subsequently sold 54 million cartridges to the French army. Cartridges that would specifically fit the firearms that he had pre- previously sold to the Remington neighbor. So he didn't sell the guns to the French, but he did sell the cartridges. Uh, and a congressional investigation that took place in 1872, though, exonerated him, and no criminal charges for impeachment were initiated. But he squeaked out of that one. He did. Um, he's nothing. It, it really is. It's very similar to the Trump case, where like you have a you know a, a high level ranking official that is charged with something. And much like Trump's first impeachment, he kind of was like, ooh, he got impeached, but then he was, he didn't, was, you know, exonerated. Yeah. So kind of the same thing. And then later on, Belknap's going to face, this is not the impeachment. We, yeah, we need to do a whole show. Impeachment we're gonna, is, we're is a get very into complicated it. thing. So we need to do yeah. an entire, I'm going to go back to school this week. And get a uh, and earn a degree in constitutional law. <laughs> we are gonna we are going to talk a little bit about impeachment this episode in in, in just a minute. Uh, now, a couple of years later, an army expedition led by Custer discovered gold in the Black Hills in South Dakota, and There's oh, gold look, in them Nar Hills! Look, more money. So soon, many gold miner, miners were trespassing on land granted to the Indians under the Treaty of Fort Laramie. And then in June 1875, President Grant attempted to resolve the problem by offering Indians $100,000 per year to lease their land or $6 million for the Black Hills. Uh, now, this is, we could also do another show just on Ulysses S. Grant because his presidency was, there was a lot of scandal in his presidency too. Um, so maybe one day now the Lakota Sioux under chief red cloud refused since this offer would require the Sioux to be moved to the Indian territory in Oklahoma. Now on November 3rd, 1875, as the crisis escalated, president Grant held a secret meeting at the white house, including Belknap and secretary of interior, Zechariah Chandler, Grant Belknap and Chandler agreed to a plan that would withdraw the U S troops from the black Hills allowing miners to mine on Indian territory. The purpose of troop withdrawal was to start an Indian war. And on December 3rd, 1875, Chandler ordered all Indians to return to their respected reservations. However, militant Indians under Sitting Bull and Crazy Horse refused to return. And by January of 1876, 4,000 miners illegally occupied Indian land. When hostile Indians refused to leave their hunting grounds by the January 31st deadline, Chandler turned the Indians over to Belknap's War Department, stating that, quote, the said Indians are hereby turned over to the War Department for such action on the part of the army as you, meaning Belknap, may deem proper under the circumstances. And so on February 8th, 1876, Generals Crook and Terry were ordered to start winter military campaigns against hostile Indians, and the Great Sioux War commenced. Now, that's interesting you said... All uh, over gold. That's, that's interesting. You called Sitting Bull and Crazy Horse militants. But they could be, in history, they could be looked very differently as not militant 
militants, but as just patriots of their that's, their Indian nation. That's true. I think what we mean in this sense of militant is as, I mean, I would say most patriots are militant. They okay. are. Let's I would, don't even go there. No, no, no. Now. I would say in my mind, militant means ready to fight for what you believe in. Yeah, I guess to me, militant brings on a negative connotation. I guess that's, and, and it's, yeah. so that's interesting. It, it is really just, the term militant means different things to different people. When I think of militant, I think of the military, and I think of somebody that is well-disciplined and ready to fight for what they believe in. No, see, I don't even think that a militant. I think of militant as radical extremism. Interesting. Yeah. So different words for different people. Yeah, we're going to have to look up the definitions on that one right there. Because you've got the same root. Military, but yeah. Okay. So anyway. anyway. I didn't mean it offensively at all. I, I when I say militant, I think of like I when when you say militant, I the first thing that comes to my mind is extremist. Oh Vi- well, I violent, sincerely apologize violent, violent to extremist. Anyone who I may have offended because that's not at all how I think of it. I think of militant as um, you know, disciplined and ready to to die basically for what you believe in. That would be more along the lines of patriot. I guess it depends on, yeah. Oh, and that's what I would say. I think patriots are militant. And that's why I said maybe today they would best be described as patriots to their Indian nation, not militants. And again, it depends on which side of the history history you're you're sitting on, yeah. So I'm sure at that time the U.S. government looked at them as militants. Negative. Yeah, but... Their people yeah. looked at them oh, as I'm sure I great, would as great leaders. Absolutely. Okay. All right. Well, we got that cleared up. A few days later, on February 29th, 1876, rumors that Belknap had received profits from trader ships reached Representative Heister, <laughs> Heister <laughs> Clymer, chairman of the Committee <laughs> on Expenditures in the Department of War. Interestingly, though, Clymer and Belknap were roommates in college. The two were personal friends, but sort of political enemies, I guess you could say. Yeah. Clymer was a Democrat in contrast to Belknap being a Republican, which he had been a De- Belknap had been a Democrat, but went to the Republicans party. And uh, he strongly opposed Reconstruction. Clymer did. Clymer did. Yeah. Yeah. So an investigative committee was created with Clymer at the head. They heard testimony from Caleb Marsh who affirmed that Belknap had personally taken Fort Sill tradership profit and payments as part of the partnership agreement between Marsh and John S. Evans. Remember, John Evans was the original guy who had the contract, and then basically Marsh was sort of a subcontractor. Yeah. Marsh getting paid, his wife is getting paid $12,000 a year. But Belknap's was, yeah. Yeah, Belknap, but she only lived to get one payment, right. which the money was then transferred to the little boy. And then to, the, and then, then to her sister. Yeah. Yep. So, Marsh all so complicated. Marsh also detailed the origins of the deal. It seems that in 1870, on a vacation to New York, Belknap and wife Corita, don't forget her. So she was the first. She was the sister that orchestrated the whole thing. Second wife. Second wife. Yeah. Yeah. Had been visiting the Marshes. Uh, Corita became seriously ill on the visit and remained in. Their care while her husband returned to his duties in Washington. Apparently, she felt obliged to return their kindness and concocted uh, the money-making scheme, which she eventually came up with. 
On February 29, 1876, Belknap and his counsel went before Clymer's committee, but Belknap declined to testify. Impeachment seemed inevitable. It's the money that always gets you. Well, mm. now you can't say that. No. This one's about money. This one's about money. Clinton's okay. wasn't about money. Yep. <laughs> On March 2nd, Clymer actually interrupted the debate when he walked onto the floor of the House. Had he been conducting hearings, you know, it all comes down to integrity. It, it does. Yeah. Okay. And we're going to kind of talk about that in a yeah. minute. Because Clinton wasn't impeached because of the act. He, he was, was impeached, impeached for, because, the for the lie. Yeah. yeah. Okay. So, the impeachment did seem inevitable. I said that already. And on March 2nd, Clymer actually interrupted a debate when he walked onto the floor of the House. He had been conducting hearings on post-traderships for a while, and he announced that his committee had discovered on the very threshold of their investigation such unquestioned evidence of the malfeasance in office by General William William W. Belknap, then Secretary of War, that they find it in their duty to lay the same before the House. They I wish I had a button then. for you for me to push when you said malfeasance. I'm so proud of you. Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, but they talk so... Well, yeah, I mean, times were different wordy. then. They were so wordy back then. In the they had day. A language was much more beautiful yeah. once upon a time. Yeah. he conti- But it's hard to understand. We're so used to... We're so used to... What I would call, when I was teaching, I called it drive-through language, where you spell T-H-R-U instead of T-H-R-O-U-G-H, and N-I-T-E instead of N-I-G-H-T-U. It's the dumbing down of the world. Anyway... <laughs> He continued, we call it bottom line up front and just get the point out. Anyway, anyway, <sighs> he continued, they further reported that this day at 11 a.m., a letter of the President of the United States was presented to the committee accepting the resignation of the Secretary of War, which is hereto attached together with a copy of his letter of resignation, which the President informed the committee was accepted at 10 o'clock and 20 minutes before this morning. Hmm. <laughs> in other words, Belknap knew he was in trouble, so he ran to Grant literally minutes before Clymer planned to announce the articles of impeachment, and he resigned. Mm-hmm. Now, I'm going to quit before you fire me. Exactly. Okay. Now, let's take a minute and talk about the term impeachment. Uh, and this is kind of where we, we might spend, you know, if you have questions or you want to spend a minute on this, um, Congress derives the authority to impeach from the Constitution. And although we technically use, or we usually use the term impeachment to mean the removal of a politician from office, it's actually just the filing of formal charges. So impeachment is just the filing of charges. It's not really any, nothing necessarily comes of it. Um, if the House impeaches, the Senate then holds a trial on those charges to decide whether the officer, who it can be a president or any other federal official, should be removed and barred from holding office, uh, federal office in the future. Most impeachments are against judges. Impeachments are not actually that uncommon. But, Unless you're Donald J. Trump. <laughs> but most of them are actually against judges. Um, and... Uh, Congress has identified three types of Congress or uh, conduct that constitute grounds for impeachment, including misusing an office for financial gain, which is what Belknap was accused of. But an impeachable offense doesn't necessarily need to be a crime. 
The founders intentionally kept the term high crimes and misdemeanors vague, which is what we we say usually impeachment is because of high crimes and misdemeanors. So it's kind of a misnomer. It actually uh, started the the high crimes and misdemeanors thing started in Great Britain back in the 13, I think it's like the 1390s or something. And back then it was basically just a check on the monarchy. Yeah, basically it doesn't have to be a... A, an actual crime no, committed. There doesn't have to be a crime yeah. committed at all. In fact, in the early days of back in Britain of high crimes and misdemeanors, you could be um, impeached just for giving a monarch bad advice. Yeah, so, well, that's why in Great Britain we always hear about, ah, we're going to form a new... Um, <laughs> yeah, they just kind of do their own thing over there. Hey, we're going to form a new parliament. So, and actually the first um, person to be impeached in America was Andrew Johnson. Um, in, I think it was 1868, something like that. Let me look. Yep, uh, 1868. Andrew Johnson was the first one to, first person to be impeached in America. Look at the big brain on I know, right? Thanks, Google. Anyway, um, like I said, the founders intentionally kept that term, high crimes and misdemeanors, vague because impeachment is meant to be a political act, not a legal one. So like you said, there doesn't actually have to be a quote-unquote real crime Committed like murder, right? It can be sort of a moral offense, uh, and and it's a political punishment, not a criminal one. Um, Alexander Hamilton said impeachable offenses were those that involved abuse of public trust, and the term is generally understood to mean abuse of an office that results in harm to the public. And the Senate may not have to have a trial. The Constitution simply says that the Senate has, quote, the sole power to try all impeachments. And so some scholars have suggested that this means the Senate is empowered but not required to carry out this function. So the Senate doesn't necessarily have to have a trial. Um, but Senate rules kind of suggest that it's, it's a duty, not an option. But there is plenty of room for loopholes. So if ever there was a time... When, for whatever reason, the Senate did not want to have a trial, that would be a very, that would be a landmark case about whether or not they actually needed to have a trial. That's why I'm going to go back this week and get my degree in constitutional law. There's a lot of, there's a lot of wiggle room still in the Constitution for um, different things that result uh, with regard to impeachment. Well, this is like Nixon knew he was about to get impeached, but he resigned Gerald Ford became, who was his vice president, became the president. And immediately, I think the very first thing he did in office was pardon Nixon. Right. Which just put an end to it all. Yeah. Basic. I mean, mm. for most people, right. if you're a politician, it didn't put an end to it. But for the rest Will of the country. Yeah. yeah. Back in the House, the Iowa delegation asked for a moment to absorb all this news. I mean, I guess it's a big shock. Uh, it is, especially like this homeboys back in Iowa are like, wait, what? <laughs> However, Clymer uh, went scratch. right ahead and moved for impeachment. The vote was unanimous, and the case was prompt, promptly sent to the Senate for trial. The truth of the matter ended up being kind of sad and not quite as nefarious as it seemed. When Corita had initially set up the trade deal, she told Marsh that she would refrain from referring to any of the money sent to her as a present because her husband was sensitive about such matters. Turns out Belknap didn't want anything to do that would make him appear to be corrupt. Belknap apparently didn't know the truth of the bribery deal and didn't think much about the the continuous flow after Corita died. 
One, well, yeah, I know. It, all the I'm bank trying accounts. to give him the benefit of the doubt here. Yeah. That she, you know, she honored him enough to say, listen, Marsh, uh, this is between me and you. We're not ever going to, you know, I, I grease We're not going to tell. I grease this We're not going to tell Mr. Belknap about yeah, this money. She, she basically said, listen. I Mar- like my lifestyle. Marsh, this is between me and you. I can get you this tradership. I'll grease the skids with my husband. But any of this money is not a present. Like, don't, because then it makes it look like my husband is taking bribes. Yeah, we so. don't want that to happen. So once he and Puss were married, he allegedly thought the money from Marsh was a private business agreement between wives and the contractor. So he really didn't dig too far into it. You know, there's a good chance he liked having... That was a lot of money back in the day. Yeah, I'm sure he probably... He might have had his suspicions, but, you know... Kim, you just got $100,000. But I don't know anything about it. That's fine. We'll We'll spend it together. So... On February 23rd, when Marsh received a subpoena to testify about the scam, he went immediately to Belknap. Belknap told him to go ahead and testify, believing that there was no wrongdoing. It was at that point that Marsh revealed the truth and that, um, uh, yeah, they were, they were going to be in trouble right now. <laughs> Just the thought of, like, you would say, you're in trouble. Just the word trouble <laughs> makes me chuckle Uh-oh. sometimes. However, yeah. Puss had her husband's back. She went to her brother, Dr. William William Tomlinson, and asked him to speak with fellow Kentuckian and Climber Committee member Joseph Blackburn. Tomlinson, um, well, he arranged a sort of a deal with Marsh, agreeing to testify only if the committee would go easy on Belknap and implicate Carita and Puss. And that's exactly what happened. Marsh was open about the fact that Tomlinson had told him not to implicate Belknap, and he wouldn't. In all his testimony, Caleb Marsh held fast to the assertion that William Belknap knew nothing about bribes or illegal activity. But War kinda Hero... Like, kind of like Puss in Boots from right, yeah, talking about the last week. Yep. Yeah. But War Hero and good husband Belknap wasn't deny, having any deny, of that. Deny, deny, Yep. He got his own lawyer, Montgomery Blair, and the pair got the committee to drop the names of the Belknap wives in exchange for William's admission of guilt in the bribery scheme and immediate resignation. Now, in the middle of all this, Caleb Marsh is like, I'm out. He headed to Canada. And like never, he never had anything, nothing ever happened to him. So he wasn't found guilty. He didn't stand trial for anything. He just dipped out and went to Canada. Um, so they, they, he admitted guilt in the bribery scheme and he issued an immediate resignation. Now that resignation was accepted immediately by President Ulysses Grant, who had been preoccupied with having his presidential portrait done. You got to sit still back in the day. The president had been warned to deny the request, but he clearly ignored it. And so as a result, William Belknap went from secretary of war to private citizen 40 minutes before he was impeached. Ulysses Grant signed his letter of resignation, like accepted it at 1020 AM. And then the articles of impeachment were brought before Congress at 11 AM. So he literally with 40 minutes to spare. Uh, so the difference being here with Trump being impeached. Yes. So there was a lot of commotion yeah. about Trump was already out of office. Basically, yes. the, so, the difference yeah, is... That brings us back to Tuesday. Now, Donald Trump was impeached while he was still president. 
albeit during the last week that he held office. But they didn't hold the trial until after. Correct. So the question that appeared to be before the Senate was whether or not he could still stand trial out if he was off out of office. And the case of Belknap was presented on Tuesday as evidence that yes, he could. But so the, um, and let, let look. Let's just be clear here. We're not trying to take political stance. No, no, no. We're just comparing. Yeah, I just thought I I had never heard of this guy, yeah. and I was like, ooh, I feel like there's a story yeah. behind this. And sure enough, there was. So um, Belknap was out of office, like he was a private citizen, and he was able to be impeached. So Trump was still the president. So of course he can be impeached. Now, not if you're the bulk of the Republican Party. No, he was it, impeached. Yeah, okay. Yeah, I'm talking about the impeachment. Okay, the trial. Right. So what happened to William Belknap? There was a brief debate about whether or not Congress had any jurisdiction over a private citizen, but the the decision was made that since full impeachment involved disbarment from office as well as removal, the trial went ahead. And so he they voted rather quickly. Um, if they could hear the articles of impeachment, they decided yes. And then the trial went ahead. Now, in the week following the impeachment and resignation, a broken-hearted Belknap was placed under house arrest after he was indicted by a civil court. And then the trial fiasco started. One of the most notable witnesses was none other than General George Armstrong Custer, who accused both Belknap and the president's brother of corruption. Now, this was a particularly juicy bit because Custer and Grant had history. Grant's son, Fred, was an army officer and had been arrested by the general for public drunkenness. Now, understandably, this angered the president, who made Custer's life difficult afterwards. And the fact that... You're going to, I'm going to send you to Little Bighorn. <laughs> right. And the fact that Grant and Belknap were pals, coupled with the fact that Belknap had indirectly provided the guns that were used in the Indian Wars out west, made the whole thing pretty scandalous. Yep. So eventually, only 35 out of the necessary 40 senators voted to convict Belknap. The senators agreed that Belknap had taken the money, but 23 of the 25 who voted to acquit him did so because they believed that the Senate had overstepped their boundaries and that by the time they had, uh, he had been impeached, Belknap had been a private citizen. So many parallels. Not exactly, but there are just so many parallels with what just, uh, yeah. just happened right here. There's a very good chance that if President Grant hadn't so quickly accepted his resignation, Belknap would have been found guilty. Well, yeah, because of the 25 people who voted him not guilty, 23 of them said, oh, no, he's guilty, but he was a private citizen. So those 23 would have probably voted to convict him if President Grant had just been a little bit slower on the uptake and he hadn't been allowed to resign. So, as a result of Belknap's acquittal at trial, he was free to run again for public office, public office, although he never did. Yeah, no, he was a pretty broken man after all of this. Much like today, there's a pretty solid split in the two sides of the impeachment results. One of the most interesting times comes from uh, General William T. Sherman, the legend who had been the one to recommend Belknap for the Secretary of War. Now, if you're, if you're Sherman... Sherman is not a very popular man in the South to this day. Yeah. No, he's, he's not. So, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So in the St. Louis Post-Dispatch, he was quoted as saying, in my opinion, his downfall is more to the vicious organization of Washington society than anything else. 
I refer to the ridiculous extravagances of those who move the first social circles of the capital. Very few cabinet officers are able to live within their salaries. It's the swamp. Yeah. In the end, Puss Belknap took the kids and moved to Europe. William Belknap practiced law in Washington, D.C., and was active in the Grand Army of the Republic, a Civil War organization, until his death in 1890. He maintained his innocence until the very end. Now, it's funny you said the swamp, and that's a term that's become popular, but Mm -hmm. there is a reason Washington, D.C. was called the swamp, because of Foggy Bottom. It was was literally a swamp. So when they say drain the swamp... It has actual multiple meanings. It has multiple meanings, but it it all ties into. So Washington. yeah, so yeah. there you go. Like I said, the more things change, the more they stay the same. Insider trading, and did he know? Did he? What do you think? Do you think he knew or didn't know or knew but didn't ask questions so that you can I would, be? I would think it's like lying if, a live omission. A hundred or one hundred fifty thousand dollars suddenly showed up in our bank account. <laughs> I would wonder where it came from. Because I knew if I didn't do it, it had to come from you. <laughs> and like, uh, Kim, where did that hundred and fifty thousand dollars come? And I would say, just don't, don't worry about it. Okay, I won't worry I about it. I think, I in my mind, that's what happened. Yeah, he I, was still spending it. Oh yeah, he was enjoying every penny of that. I I bet you that that in in my brain, that's exactly what happened. He said, "Hey, uh, ladies, where's where's this money coming from? <laughs> don't worry about it, honey." Yeah. Okay. But, but, you know, to be fair, and I try to be very impartial and just listen to both sides of all this. Yeah. I would really want to go back and read, which I'm not going to do, but (laughs) read the actual transcripts. Yeah. Which are part of the congressional record. And if we really wanted to, we could do You could go read that. And so if you're really bored, go back and look up the congressional transcripts and and honestly and, and see what really happened and make up your own mind if if you believe that belknap is do your research, do your research and educate yourself. yourself if you believe that belknap is guilty i honestly believe i think that his um what kind of his indirect punishment uh he was he was very unhappy the rest of his life um, obviously his wife left, she took the kids, she moved to Europe, she had nothing else to do with him. And he didn't um, have all that income coming yeah, in. Yeah, all that income coming in. He lived a very quiet, kind of secluded life, practicing law. Um, he was not very highly thought of after that. I mean, who would be, you know? Like, he allegedly was insider trading. And so he, he it broke him because this was kind of... Um, you know, all the people that he was a venerated war hero and it really kind of changed people's opinion of him and kind of soured their opinion. And it was just, and people also felt pity for him, which is something that he was not used to. So he, he died kind of a broken man. I don't honestly. want your pity. He was, he was very sad yeah. the rest of his life. So, so oh. there you go. The sordid tale of one William W. Belknap. As we his wives. wait for Snowmageddon tonight, the, the snowstorm of, Recent history where they've been predicting it for over a week now. I'm really excited. I have, I have heard predictions anywhere from 12 to 24 inches. The most current forecast for our area is going to be about six to nine inches. It sucks. Over the course of two days. Yeah, it sucks because I, I still have to go to work. Um, but I do too. Do you? 
Yes, I have to go to work. <laughs> well, you brought your work home with you in case In you... case okay. they called it off, okay. yeah. Well, I, st- I still have to go to work, Kim. I I don't get to... Unless it's a level three snow emergency, which it probably won't be. But I also don't mind it because if it's going to be... No one is giving you any pity. No, I don't expect pity. You're acting like you want some. I do not. Oh, I, I don't get off work unless it's a level three emergency. No, I'm not, I'm not saying it for pity. I'm saying that's the only way that we ever close down. We are dedicated to our craft. And so I'm actually looking forward to it because nobody's going to come in to get massages. I'm looking for so a violin button over here to play. You're completely misinterpreting what I'm saying. I know exactly. I know you. And no, I know you exactly d- no, what you're you saying. No, you don't. You know enough to misinterpret everything. Happy Valentine's Day, everybody. This yeah. is what marriage is like. Happy Valentine's Day. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, what I was trying to say is that we haven't had a good snow here in Ohio in a long time. And so I'm ready for bring on the feet of snow. Yeah, bring it on. <laughs> you have a snow blower that you bought a couple of years ago that's barely been used because we haven't had that much snow in order I, to use it. I didn't it. have to use it once last year. Yeah, so you need to get that bad boy out. I've used it three times already this year. Good. We're due. It's, I checked before the season started. I checked it, all the little tines, and there was a little pin that was broken. I replaced a pin. I put gas in it. I checked the oil. I started it up. Actually, I started up once or twice over the summer anyway. It's very responsible of you, honey. Yep. yep. The, army, like, the Army taught me all that stuff. Would you like to hit your applause button for yourself over there? Good job. Super proud of you. All right. So, let's go get ready for Snowmageddon. If you guys want to write to us, you can find us on all the socials, on Facebook and Instagram at An Hour of Your Life, on the Twitter and the Gmail at alosthour at gmail.com. That's it. If you really want to help us out, tell a friend about our podcast. And, you know, we're on Facebook. Just hit the share button and maybe if you have... Retweet. If you have 800 friends and you hit the share button, then you've just spread this podcast to 800 people. We're like a virus. Yeah. We're like the novel coronavirus. Yeah. So help us but out. But you want to catch us. Yeah. Help us out. Leave us, leave us a good review. Yep. Anything else, Kim? I think that's it. All right. So from our studios in Sugar Creek Township. Thanks for spending an hour of your life with us. Sources this week include Wikipedia, Future Boy, Historical Currency Conversions, NBC News, and The Fall of an Iowa Hero by L. Edward Purcell. I would also say C-SPAN this week. Agreed.